Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. So excited to talk about Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury today. I know, I put the horrifying classics intro on here, and I did that for an intentional reason, which is that this book is a book of dystopian fiction. Um, It's, you know, it has a lot of different genres. There's some fantastical elements, as Ray Bradbury points out in one introduction to this novel. There is some elements of, you know, just really critical thought um, during, you know, the McCarthy era, 1950s kind of historical period. There's a lot of just very, like, realistic elements of this book, but this book is a book that makes one think and a book that I find very valuable. So no matter whether it fits into the quote-unquote categorization of horrifying classics, it's a book that I absolutely wanted to talk about on the show as we wrap up our content for this year. So Fahrenheit 451, I read in the seventh grade. It was a required reading, so you can imagine little uh, baby Mackenzie over here. Um, I read this book and um, fun anecdote about this book. Um, We had to do our final end of the year presentations uh, on this book and we had to pick sort of one aspect of the book to analyze in detail. Um, And I picked biblical allegory (laughs) as as any seventh grader would. (laughs) I don't know. So it's really interesting. Yeah, so I did biblical allegory, and it talked a lot about the historical allegory as well in this novel, Um, a ton of different references. I remember presenting and being like, I really hope I understood allegory correctly. (laughs) And long story short, I won. I won um, the presentation for the entire seventh grade, like multiple classes. It was like winning the spelling bee for your grade if you ever went there. Um, or if you're German, like if you win that, you know, you're the cool kid in your own mind, not to anyone else. But yeah, I just, uh, wanted to share that this book started with a really fun experience for me winning, um, a prize about a presentation for Fahrenheit 451 and the different allegorical components of the book. Um, and continues with me reading it at 23 years old now, um, you know, 10 years later, (laughs) and um, having just a really lovely experience out of it as well. Um, So that's on my uh, end of this book. I have read this book now twice. Um, It's a baby. It's so tiny. This is probably the shortest book I've read in a long time, like maybe all year, actually. Um, my second read through, I loved it. It really, it was like a gut punch to me. I finished reading the book and I just remember, oh my goodness, <laughs> like that, like the air was suspended. Um, and this book is just such a powerful read. If you haven't read it for the first time, I would highly recommend getting yourself a copy. I read mine on my Kindle actually this time. Before then we had like school copies, I think, or some sort of copy of the book. 
um, I remember um, reading through this on the Kindle. Um, I loved the extra content that came along with this book. There's a lot of historical context at the end of the version I got. It's whatever like the normal Amazon Kindle version is. Um, and you know, there's an introduction by Ray Bradbury, there's an introduction by somebody else, and then there's about <laughs> exactly the length of the book in terms of historical knowledge and historical reviews in the back end of the book. And I read through all that, super enjoyed that extra rich context, and I'm gonna provide some of that for you all today. I might quote from the Kindle version of the book. So um, it was overall a fantastic read. I would highly recommend it. Um, it's a read about um, something that one of the reviewers calls a quote-unquote intellectual holocaust. And this is, of course, a, a word that I do not use lightly um, and a word that I hope that nobody uses lightly. Um, but a word that I think this phrase is really central and important to this book that um, Bradbury was describing um, events and history and tendencies where the intellectual freedom um, and intellectual development of society was being forcefully and in some cases willingly stymied. And um, that's a very, very serious matter that requires serious word choice. Um, so I remember when I read that phrase, intellectual holocaust, in sort of the back end of the book, all the historical context, etc. I remember thinking, you know, about how, you know, deeply upsetting, you know, that phrase is, and at the same time how fitting it is for the type of gravity that the events of this book describe. So this um, is not the first Ray Bradbury book that we've reviewed on the show. This is probably the most serious <laughs> book that we've reviewed on the show. The others are um, October Country. Um, the October Country, it's a short story collection. We also reviewed Something Wicked This Way Comes, like a long time ago. Um, probably first year or two of the show for horrifying classics. Um, I love The October Country. It's probably my favorite book of his still. Um, it's a book that really is also quite disturbing, um, really makes you think. There's a lot of thematic content that um, is just really mind-blowing to think about. And there's always these like several layers of metaphor that you have to get through with Bradbury in order to really get to the root of what he's trying to talk about, whether it's social or political commentary, what have you. Um, and so these short stories in the October Country, I did review that a couple years ago, also on Horrifying Classics. I think it was Horrifying Classics 2021 off the top of my head. Um, really, a lot of um, what Bradbury does in those short stories is like a training for his longer works. And so there's, you know, books about, or sorry, short stories about all number of different things, some involving technology, some involving, you know, disease, some involving these twisted relationships that go bad, some involving more fantastical elements, and, you know, all of those, getting, really taking the time to sit down and work through those is a great practice for a read like this. Um, so if you're looking 
to get into more like literary analysis or looking to think deeper about books, I always recommend either rereading something you've already read from the author or looking at some of the short stories or other sort of almost preparatory material from the author to get a sense of their style, the way that they look at things, the way that they're stacking these metaphors, as I said, um, to really start to decode the text in that sense. And you can also listen to the other two episodes on Ray Bradbury. <laughs> I'll, link it, I'll link those in the description of this episode if you are interested. So um, this work, this idea um, of firemen who burn books rather than save them, uh, followed Ray Bradbury around for quite a while. He wrote a short story about, you know, something similar about book burnings. Um, quite early on, you know, 1950, maybe a little earlier. Um, and that, that short story, I read some passages from it in the back of the book. It was quite bleak. Um, it was in the short story, some of the events are, you know, public book burnings where they're book, they're burning literally the last copy of Shakespeare or like literally the last copy of Dover Beach, which is a poem that figures essentially in this book. And it's this sort of, like, very twisted um, sport for them because literature um, is of so little worth to these societies, and the one particularly in the short story, that they're burning it for sport. And it's sort of this celebration of the burning of, of a life in that sense. And it's this... Like, the, the parallels that Bradbury draws are very real, and they're very, um, I find them very disturbing, you know, this kind of making the jump between the book and the author, what the book symbolizes. It's not a big jump to make. So they're not only burning these physical books, they're burning the ideas within them, they're burning, in that sense, the authors, what they have to say, which is an extremely problematic standpoint. And Ray Bradbury, you know, sort of wrote this, you know, shorter kind of version of what we now know as Fahrenheit 451 um, in the public library. And back then, uh, you know, in the 1950s, um, you could go to the public library and sort of in the basement of some libraries, you could rent typewriters. And so Ray Bradbury went, and he didn't have a home office at this time, so he had to find some other solution to uh, produce some work that wasn't at home. And he went and he rented a 10 cent per half hour typewriter. Um, and he did that, basically wrote all day for nine days long, produced the first working draft of what we now know as Fahrenheit 451. And then later on, as early as 1951, um, there's these sort of like pages of, you know, ideas and sort of goals for what Ray Bradbury wanted to produce um, during those time periods. Um, and 1951 is the first sort of mention in these big overview sheets of his um, that he wanted to expand what was then called, you know, the fireman. There's also like a couple other short stories that he wrote which contribute to the thematic content of Fahrenheit 451, which we'll talk about Um and he wanted to expand that work into a book. So he eventually did. He went through another nine-day stint at the library, and he produced um, a longer copy of the book. Um, apparently, it was quite like 
temperamental and difficult for him to um, lengthen the book for whatever reason. Um, he had a lot of like trouble with certain characters like Clarice McClellan, um, who's this sort of like foil figure at the beginning of the book, um, BD the fire chief, um, Guy Montag, whose name hilariously I think was originally Leonard Montag. Um, so like the main character in Fahrenheit 451, Guy Montag, his original first name was Leonard, which is just, I find that so funny. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of like, like structural changes as well that happen around this time when he's revising during this second nine day stint. Um, originally this work started at the firehouse when they were playing cards and sort of talking around, you know, the group and, um, Bradbury completely changed that, um, and the book starts out quite differently. Um, so there's just a couple of other like structural changes he made, especially that scene at the beginning. You know, reading some of his typescripts um, from that was really interesting um, for me as somebody who's really interested in the sort of like historical um, involvement and historical progression of some of these works. Um, if you uh, listened at all to my William Faulkner Night's Gambit series, you definitely can probably <laughs> tell how interested I am in like walking back the cat, so to speak, on some of these different sources and different versions of these books. Um, and Fahrenheit 451 was no exception. It was originally called The Fireman, um, and Bray Bradbury didn't like love that title. It had a couple other titles throughout the, um, the iterations, but um, he didn't love the title. He called a bunch of the like university physics and chemistry departments um, near where he was and uh, asked, you know, what at what temperature does paper burn? Uh, couldn't get an answer. And eventually called the local fire chief. <laughs> and the fire chief said, one minute. And he like, you know, came back in on the phone. He said, um, 451 Fahrenheit. And so, you know, there's a lot of question nowadays of like whether that's the actual temperature at which books burn, um, but it doesn't matter um, because now Fahrenheit 451 is this iconic title and Ray Bradbury knew, you know, as the legend goes instantly that he had found the working title for this book. So there's um, a short story also called The Pedestrian that I'd like to add towards the end of this little segment here on the background and history of the book. Um, Ray Bradbury wrote The Pedestrian um, after he was stopped by an LA police officer for walking on the side of the street and the police officer famously asked him, what are you doing? And Ray Bradbury said, putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> And this kind of like hilarious and snarky comment from him. Um, and so he imagined a world a world where it was odd to be walking down the street. <laughs> and, um, you know, very importantly for this book, the main character or the sort of main idea from the pedestrian, um, this person who's countercultural because they walk on the side of the street instead of, you know, cars or other transit, um, this character becomes Clarice McClellan in 451, and um, she's the person who knocks Montag out of his sort of daily grind and 
forces him in some senses to see the roses and to smell them and to perceive them as real. Um, there, I will mention, there have been, you know, bleaker versions of this book. Um, there have been more hopeful versions of this book. Um, you know, very, like, iterations of book burning were not, like, new to Bradbury um, when he was producing this. Um, and I think that he did take time to, like, explore a lot of the different um, outcome, potential outcomes or ramifications of book burnings in a society where books are no longer, they're sort of, books are more feared than revered. Um, and, you know, one very bleak, in my opinion, um, version of this is the short story that I mentioned earlier, um, whose title I am neglecting to remember at this moment, um, but where they're burning publicly the last copies of Shakespeare. And it's sort of this, you know, society where these books will not exist anymore. Um, and it's just the last thing that they have to even burn. Um, this book I found more hopeful than that. I found this book a little bit more, um, you know, at the end, there's, I'll talk about the plot in a minute, but at the end, you know, sort of Montag leaves with this new sense of purpose. And there's just this amazing, like, um yeah, a sense of, like, clarity that he gains at the end, which I find very hopeful. Um, you know, some of some people say the film versions are quite bleak. There's two film versions, one more recent, one from 1966. The 1966 version famously ends with people, you know, walking by in pairs reciting books. Um, at least that's what I have gathered from reading about the film. I have not seen the film. And then the newer version, from what I've heard from others, as well as reading about it, is a little bit bleaker um, in terms of its outlook on the society. And there's also, you know, plays and a lot of different adaptations of this book. It's, very, it's a very beloved work in terms of American literature. So let's talk about the plot. So Guy Montag... Montag, as in Monday in German, <laughs> this is his last name. Guy Montag is a fireman. Um, except in this world that Montag lives in, firemen burn books rather than saving them. There is a character named Clarice McClellan who comes in at the very beginning and she beats to a different drum. She is the character based on The Pedestrian, the short story of Ray Bradbury's. And she is this completely countercultural young woman. She is not getting along at school because she, you know, is not um, up to looking at all the screens. She walks and just roams at night and collects leaves and rocks and um, looks at the stars, enjoys the world uh, in a way that just is very foreign to this society. And the types of questions that she brings to him and the types of perspectives as well um, completely rock Montag's foundation to the extent that he starts thinking, why am I a fireman? What happened to get to this point? There's a point that I find just so devastating in the book where he asks his wife of 10 years, where do we meet? Like, what like when do we meet where do we meet even um and it's this just devastating picture of this society is so unaware of their own existence and so 
uncaring about it that they're that they forget things like that and they don't uh, think critically about much at all. Clarice McClellan again pulls Montauk out of this sort of comfortable routinized thinking, gets him to sort of engage, um, and it comes out that Montauk has been stealing books from the book burnings that he's initiating. So he's sort of saving books as, you know, he's burning them. Um, and he ends up amassing quite a collection, actually, of these sort of banned forbidden books. And he finds, you know, above all, a copy of a Bible, for instance, um, you know, copies of authors that he's not sure there are other copies of anymore. Um, and there's a couple of other characters I'd like to um discuss here when it comes to the plot. One is um, Montauk's wife. Um, she's somebody who's completely addicted to technology. She has these things called sh uh, seashells in her ears. They're basically like Bluetooth headphones, <laughs> like Bluetooth earbuds. And she only listens to them all day long to the extent where she has to lip read what Montauk is saying to her because she can't hear anything else. Um, she um, trigger alert trigger warning, sorry, trigger warning here, um, she attempts to commit suicide, um, at least one big time in the book, there seems to have been other times, if you read between the lines, um, with sleeping pills, and Montag has to kind of call somebody in to, um, you know, pump her new blood so that she's not getting poisoned by these sleeping pills. She's extremely just, like, she's allowing herself to be thrown into a world where she doesn't have to be critical. She can only be comfortable. And that's um, something that she actively wants throughout the book. Um, she ends up turning um, her husband into the fire department um, at the end of the book and their entire house gets burned. So, um, and then she, you know, sort of just flees and decides to go back to her whatever comfortable existence she can find. Um, there's also a character, um, called Faber, and he's famously named after the Faber-Castell pencils. There's also a publisher, um, called Faber. Um, so, you know, there's kind of these two very direct links, but Faber is a retired English professor. He's the one that sort of helps Montag get started on his journey to enjoying books, and Montag, um, I think what strikes me about Montag is that he has no idea what he's getting into. Like, he can't really read. <laughs> like, he can read the words, but he doesn't know, he doesn't have any sort of analytical skill set whatsoever. So he has no idea, like, what he's reading or why, like, what it's actually doing. Um, and Faber, on the other hand, is, of course, you know, a trained English professor. That's what he, that's his best strength. And so, you know, Montag never really learns that analytical quality um, in the book at all, which I find extremely interesting. Um, but there's Faber, who does have that analytical quality and sort of helps Montag at least escape from the society and the roles that he's been thus far playing in it. And then there's the fire captain, um, Beatty. And Beatty um, is somebody who's extremely well-read as well, somebody who quotes extensively from sort of the best literature has to offer, but uses it in a way that's extremely twisted and uses it in a way against literature. So he's like quoting literature against itself, which is very um, 
I think, alarming <laughs> when, when I was reading. Um, and, you know, BD in some senses is like the character that most disappoints me in the novel. Um, and we're going to talk about that in sort of some things I've been thinking about since I finished reading. But in terms of the plot, um, the ending, um, you know, Montag starts collecting these books and he eventually shows his wife and he's like, look, read with me. Um, he starts reading, investigating. He's just confused. He's like overworked and confused, basically. He finds that he can't go back to the fire station. Um, BD comes to visit him and says, look, like I've been where you're at. Um, and I just decided that it's, it's all nothing. Like it, it, it's all meaningless in the end. And, um, books aren't worth it, essentially. Books are these sort of like empty things that don't really bring you anything. Um, and, um, there's this amazing line in like one of the stage adaptations for Fahrenheit 451, where, you know, BD is surrounded by all these amazing books in um, his library, <laughs> of all things, and, you know, Montag is like, what? <laughs> like, he's just so, like, aghast and confused, and the fireman says, yeah, but I don't read them. Um, it's just, like, so such a beautifully twisted, like, exquisitely twisted dynamic with BD, with, like, he, you know, has he's basically a living like library he has so many quotes and things in his mind and yet he doesn't take them seriously like he doesn't read them and yeah we'll talk about that more but at the end of this book um bd um ends up uh montag kills bd with a fire a flamethrower um and montag also burns his entire house and then he goes on the run from like the government and they send this creature after him called the mechanical hound um which is this kind of horrifying like really destructive mechanical beast that the firemen use um and there's this sort of atomic war going on in the broader society at this time as well and um the war is happening montag flees um ends up outside the city via the river and ends up meeting a group of um despots sort of like bandits who are you know just living separate from the society um and they're they are books like those people are books they're books and they're the memory of books and um they have memorized over time um many 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 books over the years um and they're kind of like acting as um like flash drives in that in a weird sense of like this person is the new testament this person is the book of john like <clears throat> you know this person is voltaire's you know collected works um and it's this like underground society almost of people um who are acting as books over time which is just quite quite lovely I'm going to read several quotes from the end of this book, um, my edition of Fahrenheit 451 is again the Kindle edition, like the only one available on Amazon, um, and this is from the long after, uh, after the text section of all the historical context, I'm just going to read a couple of quotes and let them sit with y'all, and I might talk about one or two of them. This is page 167 of this version, quote, 
Bradbury virtually lived in the public libraries of his time and came to see the shelves as populations of living authors. To burn the book is to burn the author, and to burn the author is to deny our own humanity." Unquote. One thing I forgot to mention at the beginning is that Fahrenheit 451 was also censored in the 1960s. There was a version of the book that censored out all of the profanities um, and a couple of the sort of serious themes of the book. Um, and that was the widely circulated version until um, a school, you know, class read it and they compared that version to the professor or teacher's version. Um, they sent Bradbury a letter letting him know that his book had been very ironically censored and they eventually had to put the book back to rights. So this book was, you know, very ironically not um, immune to the same type of intellectual censorship and hardship that uh, Bradbury is criticizing throughout. And I'll mention here that the original title, like the shorter title for this work, was called Long After Midnight. So that was the title before the fireman uh, in this um, iteration. And here's a couple of last quotes, um, page 180. Um, really liked this review. That's um, part of an introduction, another introduction from um, earlier from this book, but page 180 of this version. Uh, quote, if you cannot read Shakespeare and his peers, then you will forfeit memory. And if you cannot remember, then you will not be able to think, unquote. So that completely describes the ending of this novel, sort of Bradbury's, you know, one of his central points and arguments of this novel is that like a lot of reading and literature is the tradition behind it. Um, and being able to use like memory and thought as an interplay of understanding, okay, like this is where I'm at in history, the broader perspective of history. Um, and, you know, furthermore, like looking at these texts that teach us so much, they're, they're from hundreds of years ago and they teach us so much about where we are today. Um, and there's always that very uh, present danger of repeating the past and repeating um, horrible things that have happened. Another page, another quote from page 180. This is something that I'm going to talk about next. Quote, reading Fahrenheit 451 after many years, I forgive the novel its stereotypes and its simplifications because of its prophetic hope that memory and memorization is the answer. Unquote. This is something that um, I did attend a book club on this book this past month, and um, this is something that came out came out a lot. Is that people were quite um, disrupted by how simple the book um, can be at some points. So characterization, not lot like it's not Dostoevsky and you know, characterization, like it's not like this big Russian lit kind of like style. Um, you know, the characters are quite one-dimensional at times, especially Clarice McClellan. It's like a big, like, you know, sort of red flag that a lot of readers find in this novel. Um, Montauk's wife, Mildred, is also quite one-dimensional. Um, you know, even these more central characters like the fire chief or Faber, like, they're not, they just don't have a great role in this book, like it's a it's a book with very weak characters, but with a very strong message, which I find fascinating, to be honest. 
Um, and I don't mind the one-dimensionality of the characters at all. Um, this is something that like I like even thought about and was like, yeah, I don't care. Um, <laughs> so the reason why it doesn't bother me, I care. But the reason why it doesn't bother me as a reader is because the purpose of the book is not this deep, empathetic characterization that you would find like in Russian literature, for example. Um, it's not the same kind of like characterization that you would want in a book like The Handmaid's Tale. This book has a very different purpose, um, which is to sort of shine a broader light on, you know, these prophetic trends. And it's a book that looks into the past, like into the past of, you know, the Nazi Germany book burnings, for example, into this sort of like past and present of Bradbury's world as he's writing this with you know, the Soviet Union and they with um, a lot of the McCarthy era Red Scare type of stuff, and then looks into the future with technology playing a central role, these seashell devices, televisions that completely cover the entire wall, um, and, you know, just this kind of society that values entertainment over critical thought. Um, and that's the central purpose of the book. It's not to provide this really great, fantastical, entertaining read. It's a book that um, is supposed to start thought on some of these things and to, you know, get, um, get people thinking about some of the real life parallels and circumstances. And I think in terms of that end, the book is quite successful. I think that like I've, I haven't thought about these themes, you know, in a long time and bringing, you know, everything up with Fahrenheit 451, I was like, wow, like this really deeply moved me in a way that, you know, like, you know, Dickens and his like early comedic novels, like the characterization is totally different because it has a completely different aim. There's a different purpose that Dickens has and Dickens fulfills that purpose super well by how he characterizes. And I would argue the same thing for Ray Bradbury. Ray Bradbury just has totally, you know, different eggs to juggle in this, in this type of um, book. Um, the physical form, another thought that I've been uh, digesting is that the physical form of books, um, I was kind of like, why is the physical form of books so important to us in our society? Um, and there's this sort of um, essay, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it up here. And there's a book called Portable Magic by Emma Smith, a history of books and their readers. And one chapter is called 10th of May 1933, Burning Books. And it, a lot of it like brings um, together some of the themes that started, the historical themes that started Bradbury thinking about this um, novel. But um, she, one of the points that she makes in the broader book is that, you know, the Bible was the first printed book. You know, Gutenberg um, printed the Bible. He made the printing press for the Bible. And so there's this societal, at least in the Western world, um, a societal association of the printed form of books with the Bible as this sort of revered sacred text. Um, so I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, we have these, this sort of societal reverence or societal importance placed on printed books, maybe because of the historical ties to what the Bible as a printed book meant to us back then. Um, there's the, 
physical form of the book, and there's also, in terms of looking at research on semiotics, for example, the content of the book and what the content of the book means. So this sort of uh, embedded meaning within what the actual book says. So there's sort of these three levels, the physical book, the content, and the meaning of the content. Um, and I think Bradbury really struggles um, in this book with the idea that like we're eliminating all three forms. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, we have the content um, with these people who go out and memorize books. And we might not necessarily have the meaning behind the content yet, just that the content is important. Um, and there's this sort of like really devastating view that we are losing this multi-dimensionality of books. There's another thing that I've been thinking about a lot, which is the use of fire in this book as a symbol, a tool, technology. Um, technology plays a really central role in this book, as I've been saying, and fire is no exception. Like, fire is a technology, um, and Montauk uses fire. It's this um, very consumptive tech tool or technology. Um, it's something that destroys, it's something that, you know, is captivating, mesmerizing, um, you know, deathly. It's something that takes and takes and takes. And it's only, there's a very particular scene at the end of the novel when fire finally gives back. Um, and I love this image of fire um, being rewritten at the end of the novel to something that Montag uses, uses to make peace with his former profession. And there's a scene where he's escaped from the city via the river and he comes across the camp of people who are memorizing books and keeping them in their heads. Um, and all of their hands are around the fire. So he sees just like a dozen pair of a dozen pairs of hands around this fire and it's so giving and so loving. Um, and using fire in this like other very alternative sense is new to Montauk. And it's the first time that he realizes that fire isn't all one-dimensionally bad. Another thing I wanted to talk about was um, a question, which is, is Beatty, the fire chief, nihilistic or is he a coward? <laughs> um, I kind of thought a lot about like what Beatty's purpose was in this novel um, because he's so well-read and it's clear that he's well-read. So the question is like, is he actually a lover of literature and using, you know, this sort of subversive language and this language that undermines what he's read for a certain purpose to hide in the society? Is he ultimately willing to let Montag kill him because he's too much of a coward to do what Montag is doing? Or is it that he's he really has to come to the conclusion that everything is meaningless. And that's something that I'm still kind of struggling with um, in terms of what I think about uh, BD. I don't think he's nihilistic ultimately. I think that um, he's a coward and he would rather die um, than face the consequences, the societal consequences of doing what Montauk is doing. Um, and just to end up, wrap up the podcast here, I wanted to talk about just like some of um, what Ray Bradbury means to me and also some cross-literary connections. Um, you know, shout out to Ray Bradbury um, and Kurt Vonnegut. 
two of my probably biggest like writing mentors in terms of like I haven't met either of them they're both deceased at this point but um like they I grew up on Bradbury and Vonnegut you know I cut my literary teeth so to speak on those uh, authors and um, I've learned a lot from them over the years and this book is no exception from Ray Bradbury um, I wanted to also mention some cross-literary connections. Um, a lot of these are sort of the typical books that we would associate with um, this particular novel, but nonetheless extremely important books to keep reading. One is The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Um, I mentioned that earlier in this episode. Orwell's 1984. Huge parallels between 1984 and uh, this book. Um, I think the society has, like, sort of similar fundamental problems in 1984. There's this, like, concept of groupthink, for example. Um, Brave New Worlds, Aldous Huxley, um, a book I haven't read, actually, so I can't say much about it, but I do think, like, when I think about, you know, books in this sort of area, I do think about Brave New Worlds from what I've heard of it. Uh, Clockwork Orange, another book I haven't read. Uh, this was brought up in the book club a couple times, something about, like, you know, chasing after pleasure um, seems to be a huge theme in Clockwork Orange. Um, I've seen, like, clips of the Kubrick film, um, but haven't engaged with that material at all either, so I can't, I cannot um, say either way whether, you know, those two recommendations are actually quite fitting for this book, but that come to mind, at least, when I think about it. Uh, Animal Farm, another Orwell book. Um, I loved Animal Farm. I also read that in the seventh grade, <laughs> and I guess we read a lot of dystopian stuff. Um, and I think that there's just, again, a lot of sort of these parallels of, like, you know, the former so Soviet Union and, like, a lot of the scares and the pressures that people in the 1950s had um, with this very, like, the culture in America was changing quite a bit in the 1950s. Um, after the war, so there's a lot to delve into there. All right, y'all, super long episode, but well worth it today. So glad that I got to crack open this book with you all today. Um, let me know what you thought. Let me know if you have any extra thoughts on Fahrenheit 451. You can always go to relevanceofliterature.com slash notes for the show notes for this episode. Um, leave a review if you would like. Um, I'm sure Apple Music or Spotify are the best places for that. Um, and thank you all. I will see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.